All right. Brothers and sisters, let's get back to our seats. Um, if you haven't got your notes yet, they are there on the table. You can have, you can go take some time to pick it up so you can follow along as we go, go back to our teaching in procrastination. <laughs> A biblical perspective on procrastination. So this is a part two of a three-part se- series. What I intended to do in one, I actually decided to do three. <laughs> um, because there's so much teaching uh, on this, on how we use our time well for God's glory. And so um, I think I shared with with you guys last week that this has been a personal struggle. Um, it is in my, um, I'm not gonna blame my nature, <laughs> my sinful nature, I can blame on that. But being a Brazilian, procrastination is just part of who we are. <laughs> it, it almost like uh, it's built in, you know, you're Brazilian, we're, we're always that 15 minute late. <laughs> um, and yet the, you know, being in seminary and studying God's word, I just felt convicted. Like, this is not acceptable. Um, it interferes with the life um, that we have before God and the life that we have with others. And so um, today we will be particularly addressing the heart. Last week we kind of covered motivations, where are potential reasons um, coming from the heart why people keep postponing things, why they feel so paralyzed to make decisions, and other difficulties, things that we postpone. So today, we will be focusing on what we call the affections. How do we change our affections? How do we change our thinking, our motivations? And hopefully, we'll bring some conviction and some encouragement for some of us. Even as I was studying some of these things, I was like, boy, I, I can go one ditch or the other, Um, and we'll have kind of covered the basis for those that are struggling with the Bible called with idleness, but then the New Testament, you have the definition of the busy bodies, right, that we talked about, those that are busy, they're just not busy with the things that they're supposed to be busy with. They're working around. They're always busy, but not with the things they're supposed to be busy with. All right, so that will be the last of our points. How about we come to the Lord in prayer? I'm asking for his help. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the blessing of um, joining together as a church to fellowship with one another and to listen to your words being taught. I pray, Father, that it will be a time of encouragement for us, a time of uh, conviction and um, decision for change. Lord, I pray that you'll be with everyone here, um, that there will be an increased desire to live for your glory and not for the pursuit of self. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to use me, um, be with the words from my mouth to be uh, building up for the, the building up of the believers and equipping them for the work of ministry. We're thankful for all that you have granted us in Christ Jesus, and I pray that we would be um, faithful managers of our time. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. All right, so again, if you haven't gotten your notes, right there, right side on the table, you can follow along. Um, So one quick comment here, the next week, we will come with more of a practical step-by-step all right, we address the heart. Now we'll talk about behavior. All right, the model for biblical change is you put off the wrong behavior. You put on a new behavior that is in Christ, you know, what he requires of us, and the renewing of the mind. So today, if we could put that on the spectrum, this is the renewing of the mind. How do we understand what we do, why we do things, and how do we change how to think, how to feel, about this, so next week we'll have the more behavior, step by step, or some things that we need to put into place so that our priorities are 
correct and how we can uh, practice. So we'll talk a little bit about rest as well, um, the Sabbath, right? What is, uh, we do need that um, and how much, how much you should take rest and how much you should work. Um, I do think that we live in a society today where work is dreaded. It, it's just something that people want to avoid. Uh, they, they, you, just, you just sit a, a around in a, um, in a coffee shop and you see employees meeting or, you know, at the office, you know, the coffee area in your office. It's kind of a place where people complain about work. Right? It, it, it's they're never thankful. Um, and so with that mentality, um, and, and I think it is built in us, you know, even when you go to college, it's like, oh, I can't wait for this term to be over so I can have some vacation. Right? And so when we go to work, it's almost like I, I'm working so that I can vacation. <laughs> we can be thankful for work. It, it is a blessing from God. It was not part of the curse. You know, work was given to Adam before the curse to be enjoyed. And, and I think sometimes we approach work or schoolwork as something to be dreaded. It's, a, it's an evil thing that we have to cope with. And it's, it has to do more with our attitudes than what God designed for us. All right? All right, with no more introductions, we'll jump right in into confronting the desire for comfort. So last week we covered three main motivation was fear. Right? People postpone out of fear because they're concerned with others will think about their work or fear of failure, whatever it is, fear of man um, as a motivation. Another one was pride. And then the third was comfort, which I think is the most common in all, all throughout uh, struggle with procrastination. From the avoidant procrastination who would trade the challenge of doing a difficult task for the momentary comfort of postponing it to the thrill-seeking procrastinator who enjoyed the rush of getting things done last minute. So comfort and pleasure are kind of like the same side. Um, they're different, but they're the same sides, um, of different sides of the same coin. <laughs> Comfort would drive someone to rather take a nap than to do the dishes, for instance. Comfort or pleasure could be driving someone to engage in a TV show, uh, in TV show hours before taking an exam they haven't prepared for. Though the lines seem to be blurred in some situations, the commonality between comfort and pleasure um, is that the entertainment and diversion are always more alluring than the reality of their challenging tasks. Here are those who's, who use their hobbies as a constant cop-out to avoid the responsibilities in front of them. A practical way to discover if this is a habit for someone you're helping is to ask them to maybe log the activities. Um, I, I ask a lot of my counselees, even if they don't come for procrastination, uh, to just log every hour. I, I just want to know if, if you plan time <laughs> in the Word or to do your homework. Um, so you want to be looking for particular patterns of times spent on hobbies. Uh, John Parrott wrote a book on um, time productivity from a biblical perspective. He defines hobbies as an activity done regularly for one's leisure, um, in one's leisure time for pleasure. According to him, some people have hobbies that seem to draw them away from God, while other hobbies uh, that can deepen their relationship with God. The problem with a hobby is the regularity and how much time and resources are spent on it. Anything has a potential to become an idol for us when we seek them as refuge. In the world of media today, there are so many things that are alluring and appealing to us. Uh, young men feel drawn to the world of games, where on a screen they can act as the heroes that they could never be in real life. Um, they, they, many become addicted to the exciting reality of fantasy. My life is boring. This is more interesting. Some are drawn to watch movies or TV shows, which entertain them with a window into lives that are more exciting and with better outcomes than their own lives. 
And I, you know, we all spend time on entertainment. Um, I, I don't think they are evil per se, but it is, again, it goes back to how much time is being spent, how much resources are you spending there, and why you're going there in the first place. Um, for these people, the description of the prophecy in Isaiah 29, 8, of people who are dreamers seems to be very fitting. So Isaiah 29, 8 says, as when a hungry man dreams, he's eating. So he's just dreaming about eating. He's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirst man dreams, he's drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. So the context of this passage speaks of the frustrated hope of the enemies of God. They want to destroy the people of Israel. But in a sense, it could describe the disappointing experience of people who try to find their refuge in alternative realities of entertainment and are never able to quench their thirst. That desire for refuge or for something more alluring, more entertaining, only leaves them more thirsty, only leaves them more hungry. Others are drawn to spend hours watching sports. Ooh, I think I'm gonna touch in some toes here. <laughs> uh, following every news on their favorite teams while others are more prone to find their refuge in playing those sports. Anything that we seek to draw our pleasure and comfort can become an idol for us. So again, Parrot is very helpful here, suggesting that some self-probing questions. Is your hobby, so this is a way for us to find that out, is your hobby something that you use as an escape? When you feel stressed, tired, or angry, do you flee to your hobby? Why does your hobby bring you happiness? These questions could help one identify if their hobbies have become a competing source of worship with God. They need to realize that if they're running to these activities to escape stress and find happiness, they are betraying their God and false gods end up becoming a false refuge for them. The idols only can, can offer a temporary refuge, but they will not be able to give us the refuge that we truly need. As believers, we need to seek refuge in God alone. And I Listed there are a few um, passages in Psalms that talk about God as our refuge. Moreover, there is a greater danger involved with idolatry that is the progression of sin. Sin is never satisfied with a little. It always requires more. An idol, an idol is always demanding more attention that you wished you would have given at first. Lingering on, and, and this is, you know, out of personal experience when I was in college. <laughs> Lingering on an episode of a TV show is no longer appealing to a college student that stayed up all night binge-watching until the end of the season. Didn't that quite that far. The rush one gets is studying for the exams the day before is no more exciting for studying for it three hours before the test. King Solomon illustrates how the desire can progress in one's heart. How about you open the Bible, your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2.10? Ecclesiastes chapter 2.10. So it's near Psalms, Proverbs, and you get um, Ecclesiastes. I appreciate uh, the sobering thought that Solomon put into writing this book which can be quite pessimistic <laughs> to read sometimes. But it's the reality that he has the end of his life and he has used his time very productively and yet very selfishly. So uh, chapter two, verse 10, he says, and we're gonna read more on this chapter later. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure my heart was pleased because all of my labor and this was my reward for all my labor. When we continue, um, some translations actually say, in all my struggles, I did not refuse even those, um, the pleasure in those struggles. When we continue to feed our selfish pursuits, we turn into comfort and pleasure sucker. Um, the sons of Agur in 
Proverbs 30:15. Paint a vivid picture of people that are uh, keep feeding on their own desires. He says, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. And then he's going to describe all those things. But the leech is that little, um, it's kind of warm, or the animal that sucks the, the blood, and they'll keep sucking. They don't have like a, a thermometer to say, okay, I'm done, I'm full, I'm going to stop. It, it basically, until they're, they can't feed themselves anymore, they just plop out. <laughs> um, it, 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 that's what sin does to us. We, we want more. We want more. It, just an hour w- w- is not enough. Not going to play video games for two or three. It, it's the nature of it. It's enticing. Now, the key for understanding what is wrong with sinful pursuit of comfort is that it reveals how dissatisfied in God we are. Uh, Brad Bigney puts it well when he states, sinning is what you do when you're not satisfied in God. And sinning is what you do when you're chasing after something other than God, namely one of your idols. So there is also an irrationality, and I mentioned that last week, that accompanies the selfish pursuit of comfort. Our sound judgment seems to be clouded. Uh, Proverbs 18.1 talks about that the one who seeks his own desire goes against all sound judgment. He's not thinking rationally because he's so introverted on himself and thinking, what are, what is important to me? It has some sort of numbing effect on one's senses, and people can become quite at ease with that because it doesn't strike them as not, as not nothing serious. But as the author Andy Farmer describes it, those who love comfort are actually passive rebels. The lovers of an easygoing life who does not submit to anybody, even though they might not behave as a defiant rebel and go along most of the times with people's requests, they struggle to let go of God's way of doing life or to anyone or anything. He explains that spiritual sloth, and I think I put that quote there for you, Spiritual sloth is a determined bent of my heart that stubbornly insists on its own way. It is aggressive disobedience to God's rule through passive means. It is a trap that demands I sacrifice what is best for what is more comfortable. Laziness in a day of bondage that, if not fought, will leave me uninspired by and therefore unprepared for the adventure of faith. Farmer describes this person as hardly quarrelsome. They, They don't like to be in conflict. Nevertheless, he's ruled by a domineering obsession with what he wants to do, what she wants to do. He simply will not give up his right to do what he wants to do, no matter what the consequence is. The slothful needs to understand his rebellion against God, and that while it seems to politely rationalize in his mind, I, I, I prefer not to do that. I, I have other things that I'd rather do. In actuality, he is defiantly answering the holy God, creator, ruler of the universe, with his arrogant manner. So he, um, Tucker and, and Farmer, he, he writes this uh, kind of a, in a format of a prayer. So it's not that extreme for most people. But really, at the heart of it, you're rebelling against what God wants you to do with your time. He says, because I want to live life the way I want, and do the things when I want, I refuse to submit your lordship. I become lord over my time and my resources. Furthermore, I will oppose anything and anyone who gets on my way to keep the ease I so desperately cherish. You just look at it. When people are not able to pursue the things that they really want to do, they get irritated, they fight, they quarrel, and that's a pretty big clue to that maybe that has become an idol for you. The biblical change will start to take place when confession and repentance from the idolatrous desire is for comfort is done thoughtfully. They need to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge that we're not our own. Uh, we have been redeemed by Christ um, and everything that we have belong to the Lord, including our time. 1 Corinthians 7, 16 to 20, Galatians 2, 20, uh, 2, 20. 
Um, we have been bought with a price, by a price, precious blood of Jesus. So we need to repent of seeking refuge and comfort in, on false gods. More specifically, by the renewing of um, our minds, people need to put, uh, to put off the thoughts and actions of passive rebellion against God's giving responsibility and putting on a Christ-like character, trust and dependence on God, self-control, diligence, and perseverance. True change will only happen when someone understands that the desire for comfort is an idolatrous worship and that they are seeking refuge and comfort that could only come from God. Psalm 16, 11 says that there are pleasures and comfort forevermore with him. The Lord might grant us some comfort in this life, but our ultimate hope for comfort and delight is in heaven. And, you know, I, I will talk about rest next week. Um, it is necessary. It is necessary that we take some breaks. It's necessary that we have a time for playing, uh, enjoying time, going for a run, um, playing in the sport that you like, playing a musical instrument that you enjoy. But when that consumes your heart and you seek those things as, as a refuge to avoid dealing with your problems, to avoid doing your responsibilities, um, that is a pretty good indication that something has gone on the right, wrong path. So when tempted to let his mind to go off and seeking comfort somewhere else, uh, we need to remember in whom should we should look for comfort. We can only find lasting comfort in Christ. Because he's left his comfort so we could be saved and have true comfort on himself. At this point, Paul Tripp has a paragraph on his book, How People Change, where he comes up with a series of questions based on Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It talks about Christ emptying of himself and leaving everything for being able to save us. And I remember when I first read those questions, that was just so convicting. Um, he says here, uh, quote, Comfort, you look beautiful to me right now. But when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself from me? Comfort, when did you ever enter the world to suffer on my behalf? Comfort, when did you ever shed your blood so that I could be cleansed from my sin? Comfort, where were you ever raised from the dead on my behalf? When did you ever promise to give me a new life and power? Comfort, when did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to fill me with truth comfort that would help me to please God even when my earthly comfort was threatened? Comfort, when did you ever promise to intercede for me to my Father in heaven so that I could be strong in trial? And lastly, oh comfort, when did you ever promise to come again and redeem me from the things that capture me and make me their slave? They didn't do that. Christ did. Reading those questions in the backdrop of Philippians 2, 1 through 10 can help one focus their mind to humble service other than serving their own desire for comfort. So biblical change can start happening when they're able to appreciate Christ in his glory and their benefits in him. Comfort is something that one can enjoy but never worship. Every time someone takes that route, they should be reminded that the pains of those who follow after the other gods will only multiply. Proverb, uh, Psalm 30, verse 5. Savoring and clinging to the God of all comfort is the way of the pleasure-seeking maze of procrastination. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 4 says that God himself comforts us. And with that comfort that we receive from him, we are able to comfort those who are struggling. All right, point two there, confronting the problem of selfish esteem with um, God's team or what I call, uh, we call love for God. Last week, I touched a little bit on the fact that um, in the psychology world, they focus a lot on self-esteem. Oh, people, just they're stuck because they have a low self-esteem. They think too low of themselves. They think they're not able to do the things they ought to do. They just have to have a better boost on their self-esteem. So the 
um, and, and books and books to, to emphasize that, right? Those who are struggling with procrastination, they feel stuck on their activities because they're afraid of people's appraisal of their work. In fact, it's very important given that the hundreds of self-books published on procrastination will claim that the key to break procrastination habits is focusing on the self-seem talk. The danger with that is that they only encourage people to become more self-seeking, more self-centered, and more selfish. With hearts, they're further and further from God. Their increased success only feed the prideful hearts which stream, scream for appraisal. Uh, the Lord has warned his people in the Old Testament about this pitfall. And remember I, I, I mentioned um, that if there's no change, someone can easily turn into a workaholic. We're... It's now all about work so that I can continue to pursue my selfish desires. And yet they're not thinking about God's glory or the good of others. Um, Deuteronomy 8, 17, 18, um, God gave the warning to the people of Israel saying, Be aware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might, the might of my hand, have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, that he swore to your fathers as it is in this day. He warned the people of Israel, you know, whatever you have today, you have it because it came from the Lord's hand. If God didn't want you to have that ability to earn money, you wouldn't. Um, you could be the best employee, but you would never succeed in your career if that wasn't the Lord's gift for you. So any goal different from uh, short of God's glory, it will be man-centered. Romans eleven thirty six says, from, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. The Lord will not allow his people to take glory for what he had done in them and through them by his grace. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So Solomon can attest the, em attest the emptiness for living of one's selfish pursuits. Um, how about we go back to Ecclesiastes? If you still have that open there, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And let's just start on verse 1. Um, you can have that open. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to be reading from um, the Holman Christian Bible because I like the way they translated it on this one. <clears throat> he says, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile or vanity. That's the word that he uses a lot there. In the pleasure-seeking season of his life, he found great delight in being a successful worker. Um, verse 4 and 6, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. Observe that the focus of his pursuits was all on himself. I did it for myself. I made that for myself. They were all good things. They're productive things. I mean, the man studied botany. <laughs> what king would study botany? He did, put a lot of effort. Um, but it was all about pleasing self. This is going to please myself. This is going to please myself. And I just want to make a, a quick note here. Um, it, you know, with that same mentality that I commented, you know, when, when coming from college and then um, going to work is people today are, are living for pleasing themselves. I, they, they want a vacation. There's nothing wrong with vacation. I do believe we do. We do need rest. But it's almost like I'm, I spend all my effort so I can make more money so I can have a vacation. So I can, I can go to a nice place. It's all about pleasing self. How about others? Have you thought using your vacation time to be at VBS and serving, you know, the kids here? Or, 
using that time for the sake of others. I mean, you can be relaxing too <laughs> by serving others. Um, so verse 9, he says, um, all right, let me just comment here. Observe that the focus of his pursuit was not was all on himself. He was not focused on serving others and giving praise to God for the great ingenuity that he was granted. He became an overachiever of his own time. Um, it says on verse 9, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. His pleasure-seeking lifestyle did not exempt him from working hard. On the contrary, the harder he worked, the more pleasure he got from them, and the more struggles followed it. So I'm going to read verse 10 now in the Holman Christian Bible. It says, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles, and this was my reward for all my struggles. He was followed he has followed his heart, so to speak. That's what we hear. I just follow your heart, follow your dreams. Yet, as he ponders, um, as he ponders what he gained from all that was accomplished, and he realized that that was emptiness. I think this is verse 11 now. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I have labored to achieve, I found everything. Everything, not one thing that he did for himself. Everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So it is for all of those who fall, follow after their own self-interest, their sorrows will multiply. So, you see, the problem is not the pursuing things that you're doing. It's how you're treating those things as a God unto yourself. Um, it is counterproductive uh, for, you know, counselors to try to help people to say, oh, you just, you just need to love yourself more, you know, uh, improve your self-esteem. No, that will just encourage them to continue on that selfish pursuit. They might be more productive, but they're still selfish. So rather, when helping someone, you need to encourage them to love God above all and to love people um, as they love themselves, according to Mark 12, 33. True encouragers will stir up people to have an elevated Christ esteem, not an elevated self-esteem. There should be an encouragement to do everything for God's glory, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, either um, you know, do all for the glory of God, Colossians 3.17, um, anything, any word or deed, it should be for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, I make it my aim, the goal of my life, to be pleasing to him. When we're pursuing comfort, I make my aim and goal in life to be pleasing to myself. That's what it, it, it's all about. Faithful workers or students are hardworking because, not because of the accolades they'll get from their hard work, but because it brings glory to God, and consequently, and this is key, it brings joy to themselves. There is fulfillment in doing God's will for us. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do enthusiastically as someone, as something done for the Lord and not for man. There's joy of doing things enthusiastically for the Lord because there's always, always reward with him. Um, I'll touch a little bit about uh, on this next week on really the promises of, of God for those who are faithful, their blessings in this life and in the life to come. The natural harvest of a diligent investment unto the Lord is that those who do, who do so will reap the fruit of their labors. There is a sense in which satisfaction follows that um, Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of a diligent is richly supplied. There is a potential prosperity that accompanies, accompanies it. It's not a promise, but Proverbs 10, 4 says, the hand of a diligent makes rich. There is blessing 
when we do things uh, in a faithful way. There is also potential of prestige. Proverbs 22, 29 says, Do you see a man is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure man. These benefits should definitely encourage believers striving for faithfulness today. Yet, as we shall comment in the next um, lecture, there is more, um, there's more to it than the present benefits that we can look forward to. These proverbs are general observations in life. They're not promises. So they don't apply all the times. But if we know as a general observation that when we are faithful for a lifetime, there is much fruit from our labors. Now, now that we, um, how can we help then the discouraged people, you know, that they can't get things done? So there's not like the cookie cutter formula. I think it is helpful for us to understand why is that? It's asking the question why we feel stuck. We should redirect them that in their identity in Christ that gives us confidence to depend on him to do things that he requires of us. His sovereign, his sovereign enablement of each of us should dissipate our fears of not being capable of doing them. The God who did not spare his own son has also graciously given us all things that we need to be able to do the things that he asks of us, Romans 8.32. This is the principle of God's sovereign enablement, which simply stated means that God will not give us a task that is beyond or ability to execute it. Even the most extraneous situations that he brings into our lives, he provides us the added grace um, that is required to handle it. You know, Paul talks about that. It, there were times that he, he almost felt desperate of his own life. He, he thought, I can't go on. And yet the Lord did give the strength that he needed when he needed to do those things. When it comes to our spiritual growth and faithfulness, we have the promise that he provides all the means to make it possible. Philippians 2.13. Can someone read it? Philippians 2.13. When we talk about our sanctification and the, our obedience to God, our growth, where does that strength come from? Okay, good. Thank you, Eric. Who is responsible? Us or God? <laughs> Both. Uh, he says, work out your salvation. We, we enter in this gymnasium, right, in this um, gym to work out our salvation. And yet we know that the strength comes from God, both the will and um, the work. In other words, God not only provides the inward motivation, but also the ability to grow in holiness. He gives us the desire to be holy and it stirs our volition as well as causes our spiritual muscles to move. When we come across situations that seem too difficult to us, we are to remember that there is no test coming our way that is not common to man. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, and he will not allow you or let you to be tempted or tested beyond your ability. But with the temptation or the test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, you may be able to endure it. When God will bring the believers into account for what they have done with their lives, the measure that he will use is the gifts and abilities that he entrusted to each one of them, meaning he will not hold us accountable for something that he has not enabled us to accomplish. So let's go back to the parable of the minus that we Touched a little bit last week. Uh, Matthew chapter 25. Chapter 25. Last week we read about that unfaithful servant that he didn't do anything because he was what? Afraid. Fear as a motivation to not do what he was required to do. Um, verse 14. So here's the instruction. 15, 14 15 says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possession to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. So the one that received 
one talent, the one receives two, and to another five. He didn't give the five talents to the one who didn't have the ability to handle that five talents. He gave to the one who had that ability. To the one who had ability to handle one, he gave one. So each one according to their ability. This should bring great encouragement for those struggling with fear of inadequacy because they can find confidence and comfort on this fact. If there is anything that God has put on our list of responsibilities, it is because he has assessed that we can handle it. And what we cannot handle as well. He gave us only exactly what we're able to get done. If that is the case, that's the case because he is the one providing the will, right, the volition, and the ability to execute that work. The Apostle Paul clarifies that this, when he explains the source of our ability, is um, for himself and his collaborators and his mission. Second Corinthians 3, 5, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency comes from God. I hope that encourages you, that uh, comforts you, that whatever you have in your plate. Now, I will make a comment, because sometimes we're busy with things that God never asked us to be busy with. And if you're overwhelmed, not because we don't have ability to do them, but because we're busy with too much, and we have to let go of things. Third, dealing with emotions as we fight procrastination. Um, I think this is a very important point. Um, because most people that struggle with procrastination, they tend, to, they tend to be more feeling oriented. I just don't feel like doing this. Uh, I, I'm just waiting for the moment that I, I feel like doing it. Because right now I don't feel like doing it. Um, so, one hand, if they're not inclined, if, if they feel like doing something, they'll, pu they'll put their minds into doing it. On the other hand, if they do not feel inclined to do it, they'll simply won't. So how we address the role of emotions and feelings in counseling? I, I see people that are, oh, you just, I don't care about emotions, just, you know, just suck it up and do it. No, God, God did make us emotional beings, and we need to know how to handle those emotions and to redirect them. Emotions are important because they're a common trait of our human experience. As humans, we experience a variety of them, and they're like red lights. Actually, they cue us in to where our heart is. That's so important, that's why emotions are important. Um, they're important, they should not drive us, um, but they should be considered. People need to be reminded that their feelings, emotions can be transformed in ways that are honoring to God. As Paulison puts it, they are raw materials out of which godliness can be produced. You know, people there that struggle with anger sometimes, they can redirect their zealousness and passion to do the right thing. Um, the fact is that emotions and feelings are volatile and can be a blessing in disguise. Since they are so changeable, we are able to stir them in the right direction and not to be controlled by them. They can be guided by our convictions. The book, I love the book of Psalms. It, it's just filled with emotions, right? Lord, I feel desperate. I feel alone. I feel this. I feel that. And they, they talk to themselves an example of that is Psalm 42. Open your Bibles to Psalm 42. Um, Psalm 42. And um, Psalm 42 and 43 are kind of one psalm. And the uh, sons of Korah are describing an experience of, of them being depressed and, and just very sad. And here's what they, they say. Exemplify to us how our feelings um, can, and we can address our feelings and dictate what goes on in our minds. How can we renew our minds? When we choose to think the right thing and to react in the right way with the inner turmoil, 
verse 5 says, um, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him for the help, for the help of his presence. So the psalmists are telling to their own hearts where to put their trust and act, right? Worship. Worship God. Act. I know that you're not feeling like it, but you do this based on the conviction. I know God. Hope in him because there is help in his presence. They acted doing what they believed to be God's will for them, even though they did not feel like it. And their feelings for obeying God and worshiping him followed. I mean, you read this whole psalm, he's just struggling. He doesn't want to do anything. He's just feeling um, nostalgic, remembering the old good old days. And yet he's saying, I'm not going to stop praising God. I'm going to still do it, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do this. The psalmists are telling their own hearts where to put their trust and act, worship based on that conviction. They acted doing what they believed to be God's will for them, even though they did not feel like it. Their feelings for obeying God and worshiping him followed it. Another passage that instructs about our ability of changing direction, regardless of our disposition, is Jesus' parable um, on Matthew 21. That one is a, also a helpful passage. Matthew 21 Matthew chapter 21, and someone can stand up and read verses 28 through 32. Um, that'll be helpful. All right, we got, I'll have JD, the reader over there. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, JD. So a father invites his two sons to work, right? One is vineyard. The first one said that he would go. He would not go. He was unwilling. But he changed his mind and went with his father. The other son accepts the request. Right? He was willing, but he did not go with him. We notice here that both sons acted against their initial disposition. Although the Lord does not give us much description of what was going on in their minds, we don't know the reasons why they were, they, they were saying what they said. The Lord Jesus used that parable to illustrate that the fact that tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before the Pharisees because the first group acted on their faith. When the John, John the Baptist has preached his message of repentance, of truth, um, the Pharisees did not believe him. They did not believe the message that was preached. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed in the Messiah, they had faith, and they followed him. Action. They followed him. It was an action. Mark, um, as Mark 2.15 says, Jesus explained that even though the Pharisees heard the same message, the same truth, you know, and, that, and that's the key here. Truth informs our minds, informs our thinking. Both of them heard the truth. They did not afterward change their minds and believe John the unbelief, and did not follow Jesus in the action. The parable exemplifies to us the sequence of right priorities when it comes to our actions. Though the faithful son did not want to go to do the right thing, he was unwilling, he acted by faith on the truth he heard, and he did the right, he did the right thing he believed to be necessary. He did not wait until he felt like going to help his father, he just went. Like the sinners who followed Jesus, he acted based on his changed mind by faith. You know, I am going to do this. I believe this is the right thing, and I'm going to do it. Endless struggles should never deter believers to act on what God tells them to be based on this truth revealed in the scripture. Endless struggles never deterred Christ from acting on God's will for his life. So, if anything, if I can leave this, we're not going to be able to finish all of it. We'll pick up on last week, next week from where we left. But if I can leave this with you, Jesus' inner struggle. Sometimes we, we don't think about these things. Well, he just obeyed God. He was God. He was perfect. And he didn't struggle. Like he did struggle in his humanity. As God, he couldn't be tempted to do anything but God's will. He wasn't in conflict with his own will, but he did struggle in his flesh. 
he, in Gethsemane, I'll, I'll keep your, go to, open your Bible to Matthew 26. We're going to read a few verses there. And Jesus in, in his, um, in Gethsemane, in his last, um, really last day before dying, um, Matthew 26. In Gethsemane, hours before his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father if he was pass, possible to have that cup you know, the cup of God's wrath passed from him, that he would do so. Yet not his will, but the Father's should be done. Matthew tells us that in the moment, uh, look at verse 37. Um, it says that he took, him, um, took with him Peter and the two sons in Zebedee and began to be, what? Grieved and very distressed. Um, or sorrowful or troubled, as other translations said. Jesus shared his feelings to his disciples, saying, verse 38, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Um, Luke adds more to the details to the fact. Uh, Luke twenty-two forty-four says that in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his, his sweat became like, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Interestingly, the Apostle John, who very likely witnessed more closely Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, he does not provide much detail on this account that he was struggling, yet he includes on his account Peter's action of fighting back the Roman soldiers and the high priest. So after Jesus prayed, John does relate what happens then. In John eighteen eleven. Um, after, you know, Peter cussed the ear of, of the guy and had struck a servant of the high priest, Jesus said to him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is he saying that? That's a rhetorical question. Of course I'm going to take the cup that the Father has given me. So even though he struggled and he prayed if it was possible to pass that from him, yet not his will, but the will of the Father was to be done. At this point, yes, I will do it. The rhetorical question to Peter points to Jesus' resolution to take the cup which the Father has given him to take. No fearful, feisty disciple would dissuade the Son of Man from obeying the Father's will for him. Despite the inner angst within himself, Jesus decided to do the Father's will. He was not conflicted in his will, but his emotions were stirred. The author of Hebrews uses this episode in Jesus' life to encourage believers to grow in obedience based on the example that he has left us. Uh, Hebrews 5, how about we go there? Hebrews 5, 7, 9. This will be the last... Um, passage that I want to mention here. Hebrews 5. Um, and we're looking at verse 7 and 9. All right, maybe you can read now, Aaron. Amen. So he, even though he was perfect, um, the, Hebrew, the, the Greek text there says that he was perfected. He grew from one level of obedience to another level of obedience. He became an example for us that, you know, one suffering, one challenge brings us to the next challenge and the next challenge and the next challenge. You know, he was, he was tempted in the wilderness. Now he has another, you know, and who knows how many temptations Jesus had to endure and then at the garden there as well. But that, it says, that he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and, made being, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who obey him. As Jesus exemplifies to us, obedience to act on God's will can be difficult at times. Our feelings would like to lead us in a different direction, but we need to deny ourselves whenever that direction is contrary to God's will for us. Jesus reminds us that as disciples, we are called to deny ourselves daily to do his will. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. When? Every once in a while? Every other month? (laughs) 
daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. A cross is not a symbol of comfort, but of pain and torture. And at times, obeying God and doing things contrary to our feelings might feel very uncomfortable. It might involve some inner struggles as we train ourselves to say no to our own will. But suffering, even internally, is even useless. Um, It's never useless on God's plan. Very much the contrary, as we saw with Jesus' example, suffering has a goal of maturing us into obedient children of God. It's a principle of faithfulness. The more faithful you, you know, the more faithful you are in a difficult task, the more you will be entrusted with more. And the more you grow. Observe how Peter encourages us on his letter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Put in your mind the same way of thinking that he suffered. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. As someone who acted quite impulsively, Peter is well familiar with the natural tendencies of taking the easy route. He sees the importance of guiding our minds on the right direction. He sees the imminence of Christ's return as an additional encouragement for us to be sober-minded and avoid acting on our feelings and impulses. He writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, here's a plan for action. And just as, you know, just a little bit, we'll, we'll get to more specifics next week. But um, the... Some principles is recall to mind the biblical truth that God has enabled you to do everything he requires of you with specific abilities that that task entails. Believe it. Two, deny your lazy feelings. Exercise self-control by trusting the truth of God's word. Three, act on God's revealed will in the Bible for you, for example, to be a faithful student or, and work in your paper. Or be a good employee, work full-heartedly unto the Lord, even if you don't feel like doing it. And then the feelings will follow. I like uh, what Dr. Uh, Brad Bigney did it there, uh, the little train. And we normally, when we're feeling-oriented, when we're procrastinating, we tend to put the feelings right there in the front of the train, right? And that pulls the rest of it. We're expecting that our feelings will take us to do what we need to do. When in action is, in actuality, is what we think about that direct what we should do. Then we act on it, what we believe to be true, and the feelings will follow. Now, some may object to the principle by saying, oh, it is hypocritical to do something that is contrary to my will. Keep it in mind that if you have the right motives, this is not hypocritical. I like, and I'm going to close with this. I like how Lupriolo states it. It says, Obeying the Lord when you don't feel like doing so may be a greater manifestation of your love for him than obeying when you're happy to do so. You see, it is not a matter of hypocrisy to feel one way and to act another. That is a matter of responsibility. It is hypocrisy to profess one thing and to do another. That is hypocrisy. If you are to say to God and to another person, I just love doing that responsibility, even though you really didn't, you really didn't, that would be hypocrisy. But for you to say, I'm really struggling, I don't want to do this, but I trust the Lord and I will do it. So to all believers struggling with procrastination, remember there is one better way to resemble your master, and that's when you pray. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. There's all these texts that we see Jesus, who was a very busy man, that knew exactly how to manage his time, Lord, that had his priorities right. Even so, um, there were moments of his struggle for him. I pray, Father, that as we know our own failures, our own tendencies, our own inclinations and distractions, I pray, Father, that 
You will help us to see our priorities as you see them. Encourage us, help us even today. We know that we can do anything, nothing really apart from you, but with your strength, we both have the will and the ability to execute what you have asked of us. Lord, I pray that this will be a comfort to everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.